0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Learn more at bbg.org.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi
3: and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host Linda Palaccio on this journey through culinary history. And if you're a fan of Downton Abbey, that fabulous series that went on and on and we thought would n- hoped would never end, you are excitedly awaiting the premiere of the movie, which in real time today, it premieres tomorrow, Friday, September 20th, and coinciding with the premiere of the movie this week is the publication of the official Downton Abbey cookbook by Annie Gray, one of Britain's leading food historians, who joins me today on this episode of A Taste of the Past. Dr. Gray researched and culled recipes from historical sources for the meals that appear in this book, which would have been uh, typical of the time period. Now, don't forget, this this time period went from 1912 to 1926 by the time they ended the series. So there are a couple of different uh, eras there um, and changes in food, starting with the Edwardian area. But She includes notes on the ingredients and notes on the customs of the time that makes it so much more than a cookbook. In fact, it was written about her that uh, she gives a warm and fascinating insight into the background of the dishes that were popular between 1912 and 1926 when Downton Abbey is set, a period of tremendous change and conflict as well as culinary development, which makes the book a truly useful work of culinary history. And I do agree with that statement, Annie, I do. Um, And I will say that the foreword is written by Gareth Neame, who is the executive producer and co-creator of Downton Abbey. And it features over a hundred stunning... Stunning. That was their word, okay. Color photographs, many taken on the set of Downton Abbey and using the original glassware in China. It really is just fascinating to look at all the pictures and remember those those scenes and those episodes. As I said, Dr. Annie Gray is one of Britain's leading food historians. She holds degrees from the University of Oxford, as well as York and Liverpool, and is an honorary research associate at the University of York. She's the author of a culinary biography of Queen Victoria... The Greedy Queen, Eating with Victoria in 2017, which she spoke about here uh, last year on episode 296 of A Taste of the Past. And she has a forthcoming book, which I am eagerly awaiting, called Victory in the Kitchen, The Story of Churchill's Cook, a biography of Georgian, Georgina Landmere, And that's coming out next year, we hope, Right. Annie is a resident food historian on the popular BBC Radio 4 food panel show called The Kitchen Cabinet. And if you have never heard The Kitchen Cabinet, you are in for a treat. It is a raucous, rowdy romp through just about every topic. Oh, yeah, there's food, too. right? <laughs> and um, she has... Both presented and consulted for various British television productions, including the recent Victoria and Albert, The Wedding, which was shown in the U.S. on PBS, as well as shows on the Heritage Radio channel on YouTube. And she works primarily as a consultant to the heritage industry on historic food and dining and worked for many years as a costumed interpreter. And just think of when you go to those old farms or, or homesteads and you see the people in costume. Yes, our Annie Gray was one of those people. Right. In particular, she worked um, on the award-winning Audley, Audley, House, Audley End House uh, show for, Heri- for English Heritage. And in her most recent book, as I said, the official Downton Abbey cookbook just released, she has replicated dishes of the period and updated for the home cook. And it's, But, again, it's truly the side notes and the explanations that make it such a, uh, I think, textured book and rich book. Welcome, Annie. It's so good to finally meet you in person and not just have a phone conversation. <laughs> yeah,
4: I know. It's really good to be here.
3: Sorry about that lengthy introduction, but there is so much to say about you. <laughs> and I, it really does set the tone because... It is a cookbook, yes, but it's more than just a cookbook. It really is a serious work of the period or periods.
4: That's what I was hoping. I mean, it's the series is phenomenally popular and obviously... Food is a huge part of it, so it was a great opportunity when I was offered the chance to write the book to showcase, I think, the recipes from the period, which are, in many cases, brilliant, but also to really, really get to grips with the history, to show people who are interested in Downton Abbey that there's so much more than just the series. Um, I really wanted to write something that was a, a work of culinary history that would stand beyond the show. So it's great if you love the show, clearly. But if you really aren't interested, you can still read it and still learn and still cook and still it. And still cook enjoy. from it, right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, that's just that people who weren't really involved in watching the series might say, why have a cookbook of Downton Abbey? But food was such an integral part of, of that series. I mean, they were always sitting down to table or always going down to the basement. Well, food's such an integral part
4: of life, really. And especially when you look at country house life in that era, or in any era, you know, dinners are absolutely key. Because how else do you judge people? Um, if you are an aristocratic lady and you're looking to marry off your daughter, which clearly the daughter is going to get very little say in it, uh, you're going to assess the potential suitors by bringing them to dinner and checking their table manners out. You know, If they chop all their food up and then put the knife down and, and switch their fork over and start to scoop food <laughs> (laughs) Into their mouth, you know, absolutely not manage marriageable material. It's that kind of thing. So dinners are really key because you get people around a table and you can assess people. But also downstairs, so much revolves around food because, quite frankly, the cooks, the kitchens, they're feeding. 25 servants, they're feeding however many family members there are, plus their guests, four meals every single day. Plus themselves. Plus, well, because yeah. you've got the servants having four meals, you've got the upper servants having four meals, and the aristocracy. So the food it really is the backbone of everything that goes on in a country house.
3: That's right. Actually, I was talking to somebody about one of the, um, the castles that is newly reopened for visiting in uh, the London area, and it was amazing how many people were actually served at each meal because, yes, there were so many staff members, and you forget they have to eat too, Mm. and they live on the premises.
4: Somewhere like Downton, at the end of the Victorian era, probably had around 25 to 30 indoor servants. So the kitchens wouldn't be serving the, the gardeners, the aviary keepers, the gamekeepers, the outdoor staff, just the indoor staff, which means housemaids, kitchen maids, valets, ladies' maids, governesses, nannies, nurses you know, housekeepers, the laundry maids, all of those are indoor servants. So they would sit down in the servants' hall and have their meal. And then at the end of the dinner, which was the main meal of the day for the servants, normally around midi, the upper servants would go separately and have another set of dishes, usually recycled from the, the, the main courses for the family. So you've got the housekeeper there, you've got what they called the upper ten. You've also got, as well as your own servants, any visiting servants. So anyone who comes to visit the family... Uh, a lord or lady would always bring with them their personal servant so if you invite lady smith to dinner lady smith will come with her lady's maid um, and lord smith has decided to accompany lady smith so he's brought his ballot they probably also have a driver so you invite one person to dinner you immediately get another person at least one other person downstairs so it's, it's a huge amount of people being fed on a daily basis
3: wow wow that's <laughs> a big would turn me off to having dinner parties. I think That'd be a little. Too <laughs> but you <much. laughs> wouldn't be the one worrying about it if you were That's the one true. hosting. Then That's you true. would just be like, make it happen. Well, before we get into the the whole upstairs and downstairs manner of that, um, describe the food and dining customs of that of the period. Now we start, as I said, in the Edwardian period, sort of the t- tail. T- we start tail in 1912,
4: end. so the period just before the First World War, and I think in hindsight we have certain beliefs about that period which are inevitably coloured by the fact that two years later the Great War broke out and life after that was never the same again. So the Edwardian era, the sort of gilded age, was one which is traditionally seen as one of huge excess and it often was. If you were rich, certainly I would say it's one of the silliest eras for food, Um, if you were rich and if you were new money in particular. So you have nine course meals are standard. So the service style, if you're rich at the time, is a service style called a la russe, which came in very, very slowly over the course of the 19th century. The Queen uh, adopted it in around 1874. So it's a relatively new thing for old money. Uh, and that's a sequential service style. So you'll have soup first, then you'll have fish, then you'll have what are known as entrees. You might have a remove course, you've got roast courses, you've got sweet entremets, you've got vegetables. It goes on and on and on and is sometimes broken up with a sorbet in between. And the dishes... Presentationally are bonkers, a lot of them. There's nothing natural on the table. The mm-hmm. idea is very much that if you can tell that it once ran around, it's kind of wrong. Um, that's certainly the case, especially if you are new money. So if you are a trader or a London banker, then you are more likely to have vast quantities of copper moulds, especially little ones. So instead of serving, for example, a tongue on the table, a very popular dish, you will have your kitchen staff take the tongue, boil the tongue, sieve the tongue, physically pushing it. It through a sieve to puree it, mm. mix that tongue with aspic, so uh, gelatin and other flavorings and cream, and then remold the tongue in a tongue mold so that it looks like a tongue, but it's not a tongue. That's your kind of classic new money so dish.
3: Back to the Roman days. Right? Oh,
4: it's absolutely ridiculous. And the whole point is it costs so much money to do that because you're paying the staff. Mm. Uh, somewhere like Downton, where the money goes back a lot, lot further, you would probably serve just the tongue. There is a, a kind of There's a real difference between new and old money. And then as you slide down the social scale, you still get stupid dishes, but there are more and more cheats and shortcuts until you get right down to the bottom end of the social scale where people are starving on the streets. So it's a a period of huge, huge gulf between rich and poor, but certainly at its apogee, I would say that Edwardian cuisine is the silliest... Some of the heaviest and some of the most faffy food that we've ever seen hmm. doesn't mean it doesn't taste good. It just means that often you do have to allow yourself a week to make a dish.
3: Well, there are some very interesting and often uh, humorous quotes included in in your cookbook. And one of them, I guess it was uh, a violet. She said nothing succeeds like excess right she does get all
4: <laughs> the right or the best lines i should say but she does but, so, she but does. certainly for the edwardian era excess was a, a byword and and i think it's particularly obvious because we look back and we now go well of course that society was going to end uh, and it it wasn't inevitable although it, in kind of some ways, it was as well. And that level of stupidity on the table was never going to last that long, and certainly it didn't last after the war. So the the last few series, series uh, sort of midway through series two onwards, once the war is over in Downton, there is a different style of food that starts to be seen on screen, and that very much reflects the changing eras. So by the nineteen twenties, you wouldn't normally have nine courses plus at your dinner. You would normally have perhaps five or six. It Just was much only more five or down. six, right? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> obviously, you're not going to do away with the soup and the fish and the roast and the vegetables and the entremet. But you might get rid of the the remove courses. Yeah, explain to us what a remove course is. So remove comes from the 18th century style of dining, which was known as a la française. And in a la française, you would have three courses and you would have anything between... five and, and 18 dishes say on the table at once. It was a, a simultaneous way of serving dinner. So if you imagine an absolutely huge table, everyone's seated around it uh, and the dishes are laid directly on the table for people to help each other and help themselves. And on your first course you would have soup, you would have fish, you would have what were known then as entrees which were also known by the English, I must say, as fancy foreign muck because uh, they were usually <laughs> French and the English hated the French with a kind of passion while also loving them simultaneously. So, uh, And they were things like uh, mutton chops in Sauce and things that required skill. So all of those would be on the table at once, you'd eat them and then your footman would come along, take all those dishes off and lay the second course. And the second course was roast meats, vegetables and what were known as sweet entremet. So the sort of sweet equivalents of those very fancy first course dishes. Then all of those would go out and it would come dessert. And as the as time moved on really, as you sort of started to get to the 1770s and 1780s, there was this growing realisation that having the soup and the fish and all these entrees on the table at once was not as practical as it might be that perhaps your fish wasn't served in the best state if it had to sit on the table while everybody ate their soup first so what started to happen was you'd put your soup at either end of the table uh, the fish would be still in the kitchen your other dishes your entrees would be on the table and people would eat the soup the soup would go away and in would come the fish to replace or remove the soup and so the soup so would be the, removed. removed so the removed dish, dish yes. is a dish it's not a course and sometimes you could have two or three removed so the soup would go the fish would come in the meat would come in mm-hmm. first and second remove.
3: That's, I mean, it's, it's just amazing how the, uh, the choreography, let's put it that way, of, of um, the service with that many courses, that many dishes. It so. was
4: very well planned. And especially yeah. with A La Francaise, it was very difficult to plan because you had to make sure your dishes were set out symmetrically and that they kind of answered each other. So you might put a lobster at one side of the table and then opposite would be a tongue because they were both red And they were both kind of rounded. And they both sort of looked the same. And so texture and uh, the visuals and the ingredients, they all played a role in laying it out. And it was difficult to do. You needed a phenomenal amount of ceramics. You needed to have very well-trained servants. And it's one of the reasons that à la russe, which is the service style we see at Downton Abbey, started to come in, because it was frankly just much more manageable, especially if you were middle class or if you were new money. You didn't have these services with 150 pieces, all different shaped plates, but you could go down to Fortnum Mason or Harrods or wherever and buy a service that would then allow you to serve à la russe. It was also much easier for the kitchen to manage because if you think about it, it's much, much easier to turn out, say, 20 versions of the same dish, so 20 portions of the same dish, than it is to turn out 20 different dishes
3: already at once. Right, right. And the portion, as you say, portions, that's an interesting topic to cover too because um, à la russe, the portions would be dished out by the service staff, by a footman?
4: Sometimes. You had two versions of it. There was the, the style that's sort of known really as butler service today versus silver service today. So what you see in Downton is you see the footman come to the side of a diner and offer a huge plate of food, and the diner... Chooses whether or not they're going to have it first of all, and then the portions are kind of within that large plate, and that was normal in country houses. So the dishes would be, everything would be plated up on one large plate, but there would be portions within that.
3: So then you would reach and take your. So then you would reach and take
4: your own thing, and and you could refuse it as well. So you Mm -hmm. you didn't have to have all the portions. What we now think of as that kind of sort of, I suppose, silver service is that it's plated up in the kitchen. That would be the norm in restaurants today, and that plating up happens much much later, and is very much part of the restaurant culture of the time, rather than country house culture all
3: right all right what I mean imagine and they did show I think they did a wonderful job um on the on the series showing the work of the kitchen um maybe not quite the you know the sweat and, and, and labor but you know a bit of chaos from time to time what do you see as were some of the the greater challenges for the cooks of that day Managing the ovens was something that always comes up when you read the
4: literature at the time. Skilled cooks knew their ovens, but I mean, even at Downton, there is a whole sort of plot line in one uh, episode around the fact that the oven has gone off, that the chimneys are backfiring, that there's nothing hot to be served. And those coal-fired ranges were notorious for being quite finickety. Uh, uh inconsistent. Very inconsistent. I mean, even the fuel itself, you had to make sure you got the right fuel. And also country houses like that often, there isn't one at Downton, but a lot of country houses still had roasting ranges. So coal fired spit ranges where the heat of the fire would go up the chimney and turn a fan and that fan would then turn a spit. And they were absolutely notorious for breaking down because it only took a magpie to chuck something down the chimney and the fan would grow into a halt and the brake wouldn't work or it would get sutted up. So, you know, so many country houses of the era as well suffer from fires that break out in the kitchen. Right. uh, Because those things, of course, it's absolutely lethal. So managing your oven was was key. And even when you look at the coal-fired ranges, such as you do see at Downton, I don't think most people realise that you've got to manage how things are cooking in the range. I mean, they cook brilliantly because what you've got is an enormous piece of cast iron the whole thing superheats, right. so it's almost like using a a, a pizza oven today that as in you've got heat coming from all the way around so you put something in the oven and it is fantastic modern numbers are terrible compared to victorian ovens but the fire sits in the middle of this range so if you put something in the oven inevitably it's going to cook on one side faster than the other so ovens tended to come with a turntable a bit like a a sort of lazy susan or yeah so you'd have to go in every 15 minutes and turn around whatever you were cooking and managing those things remembering the timings remembering what you've got at the back of the stove versus what he's doing at the front all of those things that's a a phenomenal amount of stuff to keep in your head at one
3: time right And who put which dish in the oven, and who's in charge of turning it, and who's, oh.
4: Yeah, and the kitchen maids all had different jobs, so by the time you switch to a la russe serving, the way in which the kitchen has been structured changes when you bring in a, a new way of serving, and what would usually happen is that the uh, cook would be in charge of the dishes for the family. The first kitchen maid would then be cooking the dishes for the servants, so the first kitchen maid is effectively training to be a cook in her own right, um, and then the second kitchen maid is assisting, and then you've, hopefully got a third kitchen maid and maybe even a fourth kitchen maid and then a scullery maid in charge of plucking and gutting and peeling and all the kind of nasty tasks so people have their own specific jobs but you often find that kitchen maids in particular complain because they've put their dish on the back of the stove and it's been moved by the cook because the cook needs that space but hasn't communicated to the kitchen maid and now the staff meal is not going to be cooked and then the staff are going to complain because often the staff were just as finickety as the owners <laughs> of the house. So you know, you've know, you got these all these people and these tensions vying together in the kitchen.
3: Well, it, now that brings to mind your challenges. Um, you obviously did not reproduce a lot of these dishes that would have been of the period. On a coal-burning oven, you adapted them for modern-day cooks. What were some of the the, lar- the greater challenges for you in, in trying to replicate these dishes in the modern vernacular? If I you think will.
4: the biggest challenge was the fact that I really wanted the recipes to remain in the spirit of the time, to remain as accurate as possible while being very accessible to the home cook. So I, there were certain dishes that I originally were going to, was going to put in and they were just too hideous, to be honest. Oh. Uh, they were just too, in the case of the cakes, they might be too plain or in the case of some of the other things, just not fitted for modern taste. So the point about the book is it would also work as a cookery book in and of its own right. So that getting the balance right between something that felt historically accurate but was also something that was easy to cook or at least not too hideously difficult and also tasted nice. The the recipe selection process itself was quite difficult. And I think as well you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite relaxed about historic cooking and, and how it is communicated in the modern world. It's lovely if you happen to have a coal-fired range or you are prepared to push meat through a sieve in order to puree it. But I don't think it has to be done in that way in order to experience those tastes and flavours. If you are trying to recreate a recipe in a, a sort of archaeological point of view and you are, you're genuinely trying to learn from it in an experiential way, obviously you have to do that. But... I really embrace things like the food processor and the (laughs) oven thermometer and the probe thermometer and the mixer and the packet gelatin. You did actually,
3: and you did, I was, I was surprised you did mention the, the, um, the probe thermometer with I great relish. You can cook without one,
4: <laughs> especially when you're making these huge pies, you know, I mean, yeah. it's all very well to poke a skewer into a pie and then test it on your upper lip. But I mean, goodness me, it's a lot easier if you can put a thermometer in it and read the reading. So, uh, and some of the dishes, you know, you do want to make sure they're cooked. Nobody wants a raw pie. It's, it's alarming. Um, so I think one of the challenges was getting that balance right between modern equipment and sort of remaining true to the period. Um, and another one was things like, like the the cakes at the time were kind
3: of tedious to be Mm. honest so you know there's wonderful cake i have to say the the cake recipes are you did a marvelous show they're all wonderful
4: it it nearly killed me (laughs) Uh, i'm not a particularly big cake eater um, so there was kind of two weeks when I was doing all of the testing for it, where I just basically cooked cake endlessly, um, and then cycled around to a friend of mine I and left hope you have a lot of friends, so. <laughs> oh. um, but also because of course there were things that didn't make it in there and the orange layer cake, it took me about four attempts to get that right. But that's the one that I can't wait to make. That's one of my yeah. favorite. I love yeah. citrus anyway, and it's such a beautiful recipe. Um, but the first few attempts were dreadful. Uh, and I, I must have tested about four different recipes from different cookery books and then tweaked the final one to get yeah. that to the point where I was happy with it. What
3: about ingredients?
4: Well, I obviously writing it in Britain, that was quite a challenge, uh, knowing that the most of the readers for the book would be in America, where the ingredient selection is very different. Um, I remain so shocked that I cannot express quite how bad my shock is that you struggle to buy all butter puff pastry in the supermarket. Mm, um, yeah, well, there I could think of one brand in particular but yeah, yeah. that's about it yeah. right? but most of them are with yeah. hydrogenated vegetable right. fats and they're right. not right. the same you know puff pastry no. with, with vegetable fats is, is hideous you might as well just not cook the recipe oh it puffs
3: yeah no, you but it doesn't taste overly nice. puffs, but it has no flavour
4: exactly right? <laughs> so I kind of think maybe buy that and then uh, add some butter to it and kind of almost remake it so I had a, a friend who, who lives in Boston who I constantly was emailing saying can you go to the supermarket like a, just a normal supermarket and see if you can get these things and and some of the ingredients ultimately you will struggle to get except that you won't because of course everything is available online now so they yeah. are I did check very carefully that everything was available but things like suet which I cook with all the time I love suet it's a fabulous ingredient it makes amazing pastry it makes brilliant puddings you can't make most British puddings without suet. But of course,
3: it's just not something that is on everybody's radar. So, uh, and local butchers are, you know, they're in the supermarket. You, you're hard pressed to find a yes. small butcher shop who will save, take the kidneys and save. Yeah. I mean, they have to be, that, be getting you know, the kidneys with the fat on right, in the first place. Right. So it is a lot of kidneys being eaten there too. I'm
4: a to big <laughs> fan of kidneys. I wanted to push people as well, because some of the recipes I picked because they were great. I like them. I picked some because they were in the series. Anything that was name checked in the series or visible on screen, I put it, I basically wanted to write the book from the viewer's perspective. So if you watch the series, things that you recognize are in there, but it's not written from the perspective of, for example, the home ec uh, Lisa Heathcote who worked on the series right. because she might well have cooked this particular type of stew, but if it's not named, it's almost irrelevant when you're watching it. I wanted this very much to be about the, the viewer experience. Um, But, uh, yeah, I have to admit that there's a lot of kidneys, but, uh, Uh,
3: even you, you mentioned even that in the time, um, a cook may have a choice of over 3,000 varieties of apples. Mm-mm. So if you use the wrong type of apple, the recipe's going to taste a lot different and yep. turn out a lot different.
4: Yeah, and so. a lot of modern varieties of apple are very different to the older ones. And the varieties you can get in the average supermarket tend to be things like, certainly in the UK, you'd be able to get a Royal Gala, a Braeburn, a Pink Lady, right. maybe a Golden Delicious. Which we can
3: get here as the same yeah. apples that we Yeah, but you have varieties that
4: I've never seen as right. well. Um, I mean, I've been walking around New York, basically buying random apples from random Mm -hmm. people because i want to try them i love apples and it's apple season most of the time there are substitutes i mean a cox or a braben are always brilliant apples for pretty much anything i would say Bramleys are the kind of thing that you have to avoid they're great for apple sauce but other than that an apple pie but that's it um so yeah there are challenges but i've i've given (laughs) i've given guidance as to what you you should or can use if you can't get hold of say a pit and pineapple or a, a non-such apple or a what's my favorite the norfolk beefing which mm. is a brilliant yeah. name for an apple but Interesting. Um, yeah. they were used as christmas treats you would dry them out in the oven and then sell them on the streets as these little wizened oh apples. they look like
3: oh fantastic cute. uh we're going to talk more about the ingredients we're going to talk about dishes and some of the customs that changed when we come back after a short break so stay tuned
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week, I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists to identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts, and on heritageradionetwork.org.
1: This episode is brought to you by Brooklyn Botanic Garden, a stunning 52-acre garden in the heart of Brooklyn, featuring spectacular plant displays and inspiring public programs year-round. Harvest Homecoming, an old-school fall foliage festival, comes to Brooklyn Botanic Garden on Sunday, October 20th. Celebrate cider season with New York Cider Houses and Kombucha Makers, bringing hard and soft ciders and fermented drinks to try or buy. A pop-up farmer's market will feature heritage apples from local orchards. Groove to the sounds of fresh Americana music and world beats throughout the day. Bring your friends and family and make a day of it with hayrides, lawn games, a children's Halloween costume parade, and more all in the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more about Brooklyn Botanic Garden at bbg.org.
3: We are back. I'm talking with Annie Gray, the author of the newly published "The Official Downton Abbey Cookbook," and Annie, we were talking about uh, suet and kidneys, and you know there are. I loved reading about treacle and and a spotted pig. No, spotted dick. Excuse me, <laughs> spotted dick. And and and. Ooh. Okay, so I want to know from you what would you say are a couple of quintessentially English dishes that may have been served during that period. Maybe some that have withstood the
4: test of time. Uh, I would go for suet pudding as a a kind of generic category. And within that, I think either actually the spotted dick or the Christmas pudding... Um, I mean, plum pudding in particular. Plum pudding, plum pudding, of pudding course, yeah. is yeah. absolutely iconic. In the case of the Downton Abbey cookbook, it's in there as Christmas pudding, because by the Edwardian era and the 1920s, it had really morphed into just being eaten at Christmas. But prior to then, really, it was just called plum pudding, and it was a British absolute British icon. Uh, The two dishes that summed up being British from the 18th century onwards were beef and plum pudding. Mm. Um, You would have beef and plum pudding served at every banquet going. If you look at, for example, all of Queen Victoria's coronation feasts, all of her jubilee feasts, um, the poor that were invited to those would all be fed beef and plum pudding. If you look at satires in the 18th century, you would see uh, John Bull, the quintessential Mm -hmm. Englishman, eating beef and plum pudding. There are even satires where the plum pudding is being cut up and the plum pudding stand-in for Europe. I mean, it's. I love Christmas pudding, plum pudding. And, it's, point still, and it's
3: still on the table today. It is right?
4: absolutely unthinkable to have Christmas without it. Uh, my favourite thing to do with it actually is not to eat it after Christmas dinner because it's very heavy. And that's not really when it should be eaten. You should be eating it with your beef as part of your main course, clearly. <laughs> but it's absolutely amazing if you have a hangover on Boxing Day to fry Christmas pudding in lard with bacon. That is,
3: to me, Christmas. Now, the the difference between the plum cake and plum pudding. Well, one's a cake, and one's a pudding, and uh, are there any plums? In there the cake? are no
4: plums in either of them plum was a generic word for any form of dried fruit, but also confusingly, it could also be an almond. So if you talk about sugar plums, as in the sugar plum fairy, that's a sugared almond. Um, but in terms of the plum cake, the plum cake is a sort of celebration cake. It's one of those things I think that is a bit of a joke, or at least so I've been told it's a joke in the states that you make fruit cake. And then oh, and kind of eats give it. it to people. Yeah, and no one eats it. I once made a fruitcake for a friend while I was over here and everyone was too polite to say anything until I'd finished it when they all just licked at it and went, no one eats that. Here.
3: And they regifted it to you. Exactly the fall on Christmas.
4: But right? I was going, no, 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 it's not like it doesn't have weird coloured fruit in, which is actually just sort of generic stuff. This is this is but it wasn't the real thing because it was made over here. And it wasn't as heavy as I like. So to me, a quintessential British fruitcake, a plum cake, which is the kind of thing you would always get served at weddings or christenings or Christmas or birthdays or just whenever really, it should be heavy and it goes really well with cheese. It's a very Yorkshire habit and, and it, I suppose fairly apt for Downton because the port, series is set and in And port Yorkshire. wine as well. Right. I'm not so fond of port. I've had okay, a few, right. few, <laughs> few, few experiences on port that I don't want to talk about. But um, but no, a plum cake's a really beautiful thing but it, it, the flavours are similar to Christmas pudding but not not quite the same. And the thing with plum cake as well is it, it takes icing so it's a really heavy cake so you yeah. can turn it over, you can spread it with marzipan, you can cover it with royal icing and you can stand Like people on it. So there's no need for using doweling or any supports. This is the kind of cake that you can you know, this this lasts. I mean, they do sometimes still find pieces of of Queen Victoria's wedding cake from time to time uh, they come up for auction. Well, it's
3: usually the top layer of a wedding cake that, that then the bride and groom are supposed to put in their freezer and keep it for, yeah, or well, they don't need to
4: freeze it. To be honest, there's enough booze in it usually, and also sugar. Cabinet, that, right. Yeah, but I mean right. that is a very Edwardian habit that idea. do. The tiered cake is something that comes in really during the Downton era, and you, you do actually see that in the show. You see the early wedding cakes being stacked, and the uh-huh. later ones are on columns. Right. So that sort of classic columned cake is, is right.
3: relatively Mary had new. Her, her, she had that. Yeah, the very it's, high it's a cake.
4: relatively yeah. new invention. But um, but if it's not plum cake, then don't get near it.
3: Well, along came the war. Um, well, early on, and actually in the series, um, the Great War, the um, you know World War One, and there were obviously a lot of changes taking place that were in the rumblings anyway. But because of hardships, a lot of changes took place. Can you describe some of the changes that, how they affected the food and and service. The first thing I think is that the war itself
4: affected food because there were shortages, severe shortages that didn't bring in rationing until 1918. Um, there was a government campaign to get people to eat less bread. Uh, the idea being that if you eat, ate, less bread, there, ate less bread, there would be flour, more space for guns rather than flour, if you were importing flour. That eating less bread was your patriotic duty, that you should eat more vegetables, you should try and cut down on meat. All the kind of things that ended up being forced on people by rationing were, started off as governmental voluntary campaigns. And it was seen as being very, very unfair because the rich who had country estates obviously had pretty unlimited meat in terms of being able to shoot game, uh, having home farms, having unlimited dairy as well so that it was a real kind of sense of resentment building up against people like lord grantham in the series who was seen to flout all these great schemes but overall the health of the nation improved during world war one because for the first time everybody had a job if you were male and you were within the age of conscription you had a job yes you might well die very likely to die but you were being paid and your family back home were being paid Mm -hmm. and if you were a woman you had a job because you would be in the factories you would be making munitions so in terms of the standard of living it actually rose during the first world war um and then afterwards when the dust settled it was a a, a, you had two years of sort of national mourning of of grieving when there was this very strange atmosphere in the country i mean nearly everybody knew someone who had died there were tramps all over the streets there were people who couldn't settle they may they may have been maimed they may have been lacking limbs they may have been facially disfigured and there were other people that outwardly looked completely as if there was nothing wrong with them but of course mentally they were shell-shocked they couldn't settle to a normal life so for years after the war there were people just roaming the countryside who who couldn't live in homes who couldn't settle at all and that idea that idea that you had this huge amount of people who had been displaced who were ill who now couldn't hold down a job had a similar knock-on effect to what happened during the war Um, the background to all of that is that you you couldn't have nine course meals in in that period anymore. Your your courses were very much cut down if you were rich. And if you were poorer as well, there were more and more government initiatives during the war to try and increase the way in which the nation was fed. One of the things they'd realised during the First World War, they'd been realising it before, was how awful the nutrition for most of the working classes were. Uh, The returns for the Burr War just before the First World War and also for the First World War itself showed that around a third of young men were too malnutritioned to really fight properly. Hmm. Um, And the height differences between, say, children at a private school and children at a government-run public school, you know, you had five or six inches difference in 13-year-olds just because of food and what they were eating. So after the war, the government really did try much, much harder than previous to try and improve the nutrition for the working classes things like free milk in schools um lunches breakfast in schools campaigns really to try and increase nutrition pasteurized milk started to come in which is much much safer than having unpasteurized milk there were all sorts of little changes that happened so food did start to shift uh, and then you add to that the other influences as well. So you have a lot of people coming back from France, in particular working class men, who've developed a taste for white wine and chips mm-hmm. and eggs because that's what they were living on in the front. You have people being repatriated from uh, prison camps in Germany and Switzerland who bring back recipes with them. There's a, a brilliant story about the liqueur Benedictine, which was a French liqueur, is a French liqueur uh, made in Fécond which is just on the Normandy border, Norm- Normandy coast rather, uh, and it was always marketed as a health drink. It was invented in the 1870s. Uh, with the sort of invention myth involving a mad monk and the usual kind of thing. And all of these very bored, injured, shocked troops waiting around for months to be repatriated, sitting in Ficont with nothing to do, were drinking this liqueur on the grounds it would help them to feel better. <laughs> and of course, they gained a taste for it. So right. they went back to the UK and they kept their taste up. And still today, if you go up to Burnley and Clitheroe and all around those areas, you'll find that Benedictine is drunk instead of beer when people are watching football. Wow! That's... And the Burn- I think it's the Burnley mine. <laughs> Club is the biggest consumer of Benedictine outside That's France. Heavy. So it has a huge knock-on
3: effect. Yeah. It does change the way people eat. Well, and then add to that the fact that the women's suffrage movement was taking place at that time too so yes. women were not necessarily going to stay
4: no and a lot of people scullery. didn't want to be
3: servants I yeah. mean a lot although service
4: boomed I mean by 1931 it was back up to being the biggest female employer that there was but people didn't want to be there anymore mm. so there were maids saying well I left service because I wanted my own life back so whereas previously it had been totally accepted and in fact just it was seen as a inevitable that if you were a girl you would go into service now more and more people went into the service industries so they became shopkeepers they became assistants in shops they worked for the post office for
3: the telephone exchange and we see that in the series as well we do and um, you know both the of the upper class one of the daughters goes and finds a job yeah and even and, and, the, and the wait staff leaves right? yeah
4: and ivy who is the third kitchen maid, leaves right. and isn't replaced i mean in terms of, of cooking staff before the war someone of the background of lord grantham who was an earl would Probably have had a male cook because they were more expensive than women and they were more prestigious. After the war, many, many more professional cooks were female. Although it was still a very difficult profession to work in as a woman because you were regarded as inferior and you were paid less than your male compatriots. Yes.
3: Yeah. You, uh, you did have an interesting chart in the book about the uh, the pay scale.
4: Mm. Not a whole lot changed. No, for many to has it, yeah.
3: right. um, I mean, I think
4: the other thing <laughs> you see between the wars is is a uh, the idea of global food as well. I mean,
3: Indian right. food. Had always uh, been I was going to ask about the, the the foreign influences. Yeah. The foreign cuisine so you always had
4: Indian food um ever really since the middle of the 18th century Indian food was popular because the British were colonizing and then ruling over India and they brought back the taste of India changing them on the way I think it's fair to say uh, Anglo-Indian food is very different to the food that people would have been used to actually eating in India but I think also really nice I mean I, I actually quite like a curry with apple in partly because I understand the apple is in there because the cooks in the UK couldn't get mango no. Well they could but it, it sort of came in pickled and it was a bit weird so they put in what they could find to replicate uh, foods. But certainly between the wars there's a kind of idea that Europe needs to be together, that people need to start to really understand Europe more, that we should embrace the flavours of, of, of the globe. So European flavours come in more than, French was always in, Italian was relatively popular, but now you see German cookery and Austrian cookery start to appear more, and also American food becomes very influential, partly because the first diets come in, so there becomes a growing obsession with calorie controlled diets, and the few female- figure. You know, you can't really look good in a flapper dress unless you're very, very thin. Yeah, that's right. So the Hollywood diet, the infamous black coffee and grapefruit, grapefruit diet, yeah, oh, yes. grapefruit. Um, that kind of thing. Well,
3: are there any English dishes um, that from the earlier periods that you can think of that may have just totally faded away that would have been served in this in, in this upper class family that have perhaps... Totally faded away. That we don't. Obviously, they're not in the book because you wouldn't put them in the book if they no, faded well, away. Well, some
4: but. I have actually. Um, deviled biscuits. The idea of deviling. We still devil in the UK, uh, and you devil I think over yes, here. You have deviled eggs and mm-hmm. things. Um, but really, in the UK, we only really devil kidneys and maybe an egg from time to time. We don't really have devils in the way that that, that people did do. And, uh, the deviled biscuits that I've put in the book I think are really ham. quite You're fun. You sell devil
3: deviled ham we, we, yeah, we you, do as well. But right? we don't
4: tend to devil much more than, than really kidneys uh, and a few other bits and pieces. We certainly don't, don't devil biscuits in the UK anymore so that that I think is I is can't I can't even do.
3: imagine. Yes.
4: They're just sort of biscuits that are fried in a spicy mixture really. They're quite fun with cheese. Oh. Um, I think the variety of ice cream that was available in the Edwardian period in particular, that is something that we've really lost. We think of ourselves as being terribly sophisticated because you can buy fish food and peanut butter and, I don't know, all sorts of ice creams. But if you bought something like Agnes Marshall's Book of Ices in 1885 the bewildering and amazing variety of ice creams there she had a curry ice cream she was freezing ice cream using liquid nitrogen back in the 1880s um she has an incredible cucumber ice cream in her book you know those flavors i think we have lost um And I think, as well, there are certain ingredients we don't use much that we used to, things like orange flower water and rose water, which Mm -hmm, were very, very popular now are very much things that you would only associate with things like Turkish delight or or cuisine of the Middle East. They are
3: starting to make a bit of a comeback. They are beginning to come back.
4: Orange flower water in particular, I think, is an absolutely beautiful flavour. And whipped syllabub, actually. I haven't put that in the book, partly because it was a bit old hat by 1912. But if you want to make a, a sort of classic, I suppose, late 18th century recipe, you would take single cream um brandy or hard cider or wine mix them all together with some sugar a bit of orange flower water and then you kind of you don't quite whisk them you're supposed to use a chocolate whisk so a tool that we don't use yeah, anymore no. uh, and the idea is you kind of raise a froth so it looks a bit like bubbles on bath foam and you take that off and you lay it on a sieve and you dry it out for about three days and it kind of goes a bit weirdly cheesy it sounds disgusting but what you end up with, you use the liquor, the liquor left from the cream, and then you float this froth on top. And what you end up with is this incredible confection that kind of just bursts in your mouth, and is both savory and sweet, and boozy and creamy all at the same time. Huh. And it's the most amazing palate cleanser. Um, so that I would say is something that we have definitely
3: lost. Yeah, and that's something we associate with our, the colonial period mm. here in America. That yeah. was a drink of choice. Not, but it was no, it would not be aged as you spoke of, letting it sit and dry for and, and a, a um, developing that cheesy flavour. It would have been probably more mixed more to order. You know?
4: Yeah, and you do get syllabubs later on, and there is one in the book which are, which were known then as everlasting syllabubs, and those are the ones where you put eggs in them and you set them, and they're much more like a posset, something right. like that. Yeah. So those are still around, I think. Um,
3: something, an important question I wanted to ask you, um, and you mentioned the, the... Who was the Book of Isis, the woman? Agnes Marshall. Agnes Marshall, right. Um, your bibliography is is quite hefty, and as it should be. Uh, were there a couple of resource, of sources, source material in particular, that you relied most heavily on, or did you pull from everywhere?
4: I pulled from a lot of places. I've got a lot of books at home. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, I also used... I went to the British Library on several research fact-finding trips because there are cookbooks that i know are reliable so things like uh warren's model cookery was very very useful for the servants hall because i know it's good eliza acton always solid um aggie marshall brilliant for ice cream horrific for most other things Mm. quite frankly (laughs) so there are certain books um dorothy olhusen is brilliant for the 1920s as well so those i knew and i knew that they could be used for the backbone but there were also books that i wanted to include because I wanted to actually be able to talk about the book. Um, So you mentioned suffrage earlier. Well, the Women's Suffrage Cookbook was a book I really wanted to use. All the recipes in it are horrible. Um, So it's a real struggle. I was like, I have to... I want to put this book in. Um, And in the end, I found a fish cream that I could just about work with. So that's gone into the book. But because I wanted that book... in some cases, there's another book on sandwiches where the, it's just a joy to read and he has the most bonkers, brilliant sandwich fillings like nasturtium and bone marrow. Uh, weirdly good. Wow. Um, so there were certain books I wanted to use and those resources were ones I had to go and hunt out. So... Uh, I mean, every every recipe in the book is is from between 1875 and 1930 in terms of the the cookery books and when they were published. Um, There's a couple of exceptions where books were published a little bit earlier, but only because the recipes would still have been in use at that point. So it was really good fun, actually, hunting down recipes, books from that era and deciding which ones were good and just... It was a really enjoyable process, cooking my way through books that I'd not really used before, because previously my book had been on uh, Queen Victoria, so I mm-hmm. knew a lot about that.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And then through this, I learned quite a lot more about 1920s cooking.
3: <clears throat> well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it is so much more than just a cookbook. And as I say, you include this this lengthy bibliography at the end, which I so appreciated. <laughs> And I hope other people will too. I don't think
4: it's a real book without a proper bibliography. There you go.
3: <laughs> and uh, and just, just the notes on, and, and I wish we had all the time in the world to talk about it, but just the notes about... Um, oh, utensils and customs and oh bread, oh I wanted to talk about bread and I know you love bread and uh, going from white flour to brown flour and you know And, and bread is so beautiful and so
4: uh, ubiquitous and people ate it for every meal and if you were working class you basically lived on bread and if you were upper class you still lived on bread and I love the fact that white bread was seen as more genteel because it was more easily digestible because brown bread pff, might make you flatulent. And, and they found
3: and, out it had no, no nutrition. Yeah there, so. exactly
4: and <laughs> it was beginning to swing back and actually the there's a recipe in the book actually for health bread, which I love, which is the only edible wholemeal bread I've managed to come across yet because most uh. wholemeal bread feels so terribly
3: worthy. Uh. And this one's got lard in and it makes all the difference, obviously. Uh, uh, be, and I, what I would like to touch on, because we have one minute that I can I can touch on it, and that is describe to us what was the still room. We can use our brains for that one too, but, but then how it morphed into much more than just...
4: The still room started off really in the late Tudor period and it would have been the room where the mistress of the house worked with her still room maid to distill, hence still, potions and cordials for the house so part of the role of the mistress of the house at that point would have been to care for the household um health and distillations were health drinks so gin when it like benedictine right exactly and (laughs) gin which would cure the plague obviously and also make you quite happy uh and then slowly as the cordials and health preparations and perfumes became more commercially available the role of the still room changed and it stopped being about distilling and started being much more about preparing things that really wouldn't been, weren't necessary to prepare in the kitchen so jams, jellies um, perhaps potpourri, that was quite popular to do. There, there was a crossover between mm-hmm. housekeeper recipes and cook's recipes. So the still room ended up having this very useful function as somewhere you could prepare both edible and non-edible goods that often required an oven or a hob, but there weren't quite things the cook would be in charge of. Sounds
3: like a room I would like to spend time in.
4: I imagine, well they do, smell really, really nice. There's yeah. lots of flowers and spices and that kind of thing. And, and there was no still in a still room by the time that the Downton Abbey series is set at all, but it was very much a housekeeper space and the housekeeper would usually have a china room as well and a a linen room and her own room as well. The housekeeper was the the senior female servant so she would have her own sitting room and then this still room where she would be in charge of things like preserves and pickles and I mean sometimes a cook would do those things and sometimes a cook wouldn't. It was was quite fluid and sometimes the cook and the housekeeper were the same person in smaller houses as well. But certainly the still room was one of those places that you can imagine full of bubbling copper pans with jam in and
3: lots and lots of beans. And away from the the, from the raucous yeah. hustle and bustle of the kitchen, but and then the so hot was the pastry room because, it has, because it's like that's this sort right. kind
4: of a separate pastry room as well. Yeah, so.
3: if only. <laughs> mm. Yeah, <laughs> a huge marble slab and all yeah. cool and yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it has been. I mean, as I say, there's so so much more in this book, and so tidbits like that you can get along with a great <laughs> recipe in the official Downton Abbey cookbook, and Annie Gray. It has been a, a treat. A pleasure and a treat, and and I hope you'll come back and join us again for I more talks. I can't it. wait to talk about Churchill's cook. All right, we've <laughs> got that date, all right? <laughs> so that will be in again. Again, thank you for sharing everything, and I hope that you'll look for the Downton Abbey cookbook, the official Downton Abbey cookbook. And thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com/slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization